Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime, Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us. We are so thankful to have you here. Per usual, Katie, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Not too shabby. Great. How are you today? I am here and doing it. So I'm good. Perfect. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'm doing it. It's, you know, November, so it's good. Fall. It's definitely fall now. Yeah. Daylight savings. Oh, God. Great. We love that. Sadness and despair at four o'clock in the afternoon. Which is ironically when we are recording this as we speak, and it is already... The the daylight is fading away. So you guys all know that we love, 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 as nurses especially, and me most definitely on night shift, love daylight savings time. So the next... uh, Five months or so are going to be filled with depression, oversleeping, overeating, and, well, sad. So anyway, much like sad, today's episode is that. However, we do have, of course, a little recommendation, actually, from Katie that I you briefed me on uh, before the show that I'm really excited to hear more about. Yeah, so I'm not going to tell you guys exactly where I live, but recently on the podcast, we said that I moved. Mm -hmm. Um, I love my new place and kind of in the general vicinity of my new place, there is a community diner that just opened Mm. called Folded, F-O-L-D apostrophe D, and it's in Summersworth. They're a full service diner on a mission to foster community and support those that need and deserve a fair chance. So per their website, They provide high-quality food, friendly service, and a safe and inclusive environment for patrons and staff. Folded serves a creative assortment of breakfast and lunch food, eggs, pancakes, sandwiches, burgers, crepes, and more. Folded offers food for a variety of different palates and dietary restrictions. More than a restaurant, Folded provides workforce opportunities for those in recovery or previously incarcerated. This is a demographic of people who are frequently deprived of employment opportunities or a safe and supportive environment to grow and build healthy social connections. Folded aims to offer an opportunity to make an income, but also to develop employable skills for sustainable recovery. So they are just incredible. Their mission is incredible. Mm -hmm. Their menu looks phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Just the things you listed sounded. Crepes. Oh, my God. Crepes. And they also have standard diner food, like fun milkshakes. They have this orange almond French toast that sounds so bomb. Mm, That does sound good. And it just is so nice that you know and a lot of places too they boast yeah i know we're we're recovery friendly or we're, we don't discriminate against but it's really hard when you're someone who's struggling with substance abuse and recovery mm-hmm. or are formerly incarcerated like yes it's nice to know that there are certain places around you that would hire you yeah but to have an environment where you know it's going to be safe for you there's other people going through what you've gone through you're not going to be the only one that's you know in recovery or formerly incarcerated right to have a place that not only you can have an income but you can gain skills right and even just getting out of the house like it's really nice at least for me when I go to work to chat with my coworkers, to chat with patients and especially in food service you know it's really important to have those skills you know that you can use those anywhere. Absolutely. So it's just really cool that they're doing that. And it's very close to home. Yes. Um, for those of you that are familiar, it is in the same building where Teetotaler was in Summersworth. Teetotaler is a queer owned coffee shop and they are oh. reopening, but in downtown Dover. Cool. Um, they're actually painting the outside of the old Adele's location pink oh. for Teetotaler. So that's coming back and cool. in its place, Folded is there. Nice. So, yeah, highly recommend. Definitely check them out. They're on High Street in downtown Summersworth. Cool. Very nice. Hell yeah. That's awesome. We'll have to go there on... For sure. Someday when we're taking a podcasting lunch break, or as we call it, a TCNE takes on lunch date or something. (laughs) Or union mandated meal date. Yes, right. That's awesome. Yeah, super exciting. I love places with missions like that. That's really awesome because... People who have um, criminal history like that or are in recovery don't get a whole bunch of uh, employment opportunities because of their history. And that's unfortunate, um, especially when it's like drug related or like 
weed possession charges. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's ridiculous. So that's great. Yeah, and the diner itself does not have any alcohol or anything like that, so it is a very friendly environment. I know yeah. some diners do, like, mimosas, mimosas yeah. or Bloody Marys or something, but this diner, they do, like, fun floats and milkshakes instead. Love it. So it's definitely good for people who are working there to not have any kind of temptation and just mm-hmm. be able to go to work and not be surrounded by a substance they're actively trying to avoid. Right, be safe. Yeah, I totally. Love it. That's wonderful. Very, very thoughtful. Great. Awesome. We'll definitely have to check that out. And guys, definitely, if you are in the Summersworth area or in, I don't know, southern New Hampshire, you should check it out. Mm-hmm. For sure. I know I will. Hell yeah. Great recommendation. And uh, less delicious today, our case. Very, a lot of moving parts. A lot of folded in there. Get it? Hey. Hey, that's a free uh, promo. We are not sponsored by Folded, the new <laughs> diner. But if they wanted to, wink, wink. we are here for you. No, but really, this case is fucking awful. <laughs> it's really bad. But it's very interesting because it involves uh, child protective services, which I personally deal with a lot at my job. And it's actually one of my strong suits is dealing with patients who are under the watch or guise of child protective services. It's actually one of my favorite things to do at work, which is really messed up. Saying favorite is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like it's my most, it's an interest of mine. Mm -hmm. So reading through this, it was very um, familiar and sad, but we've got a really interesting story today. So definitely take a listen, y'all. For sure. Big thank you to Greg H. who suggested this case to us via our email. Thank you so much, Greg H., because this is a very interesting story. Yeah, good suggestion. Absolutely. And without further ado, today we will be covering the The murder murder of Lara Sobel. All right, Katie. What are your sources for me today? Liz. Hmm. I have for you today information from the Seattle Times, Burlington Free Press, Mass Live, Valley News, VT Digger, and our bestest friends, aside from Wikipedia and Murderpedia, Lawgestia.com. Court documents can't go wrong. Absolutely. I love them. I also used Lawgestia, of course. God bless. Of course I did. I used Mass Live. I used two articles from VT Digger. I used uh, an article from NECN, aka the New England Cable News, which aka we were on that. Quick plug, listen to this. Go onto their website, search listen to this, and you'll find our episode we did in uh, September. I also used an article from Vermont Community Newspaper Group, the Rutland Herald, and I used Legacy.com. Hell yeah. Absolutely. I had a lot this week. I just kept finding more and more. Let's start by introducing the main character of our story, the title, Lara Sobel. A wonderful woman by all accounts. Lara Kim Sobel was born in Oceanside, New York in 1967, and she fell in love with the state of Vermont. She earned both her bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Vermont, which is a beautiful school, to be fair. She was very smart and a very kind woman. Obviously, you could tell she was smart, given she had a master's degree. That's not easy. Eventually, Lara planted her roots permanently in Vermont and got a job working for the state. She was a caseworker for the Department for Children and Families. She had been working there for 14 years, which you put in the work. That's, That's a good amount of time. And the Department for Children and Families, every state you go to, it's going to be different. In Maine, we call it DHHS. It's like Department of Human and Health Services. Some places call it CPS, like Child Protective Services, Mm -hmm. is probably more what it's known as, like kind of as a basis. Yeah, DCYF, Department of Children for Youth and Families. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different things you can call it. Yeah. Um, Every state is a little different, but regardless, we're all, whatever we end up calling it, It's all Child Protective Services. Um, She's a social worker for protecting children, essentially, is what she does. And that's a hard, hard job to do. 
absolutely difficult. Lara ended up getting married to a man named Timothy, and together they raised two daughters, Julia and Alana, in East Montpelier, Vermont, which is also a very nice area. Mm -hmm. Very picturesque. Lara was not only respected, but she was also very well loved. Being a DCF worker, like I said, is super difficult, and she was often placed in super tough situations, which makes it kind of hard to be loved by, like, your clients and stuff because you're often seen as the enemy. Absolutely. A lot of times what people who go through these child protective services and, like, have cases open with the state regarding their children, they see these workers as people who are actively trying to take their children away. But what they don't know is that they're actively trying to help them keep their children and give them, you know, the olive branch to try and help them stop what they're doing and fix what's causing whatever is making them lose their child. But they are often perceived as the enemy, Mm -hmm. which is really easy to do when you're in that field. So a huge part of the job she did was pulling children away from dangerous situations, which obviously often meant pulling them from their parents, which obviously, you know, made parents very sad and angry. And again, I see that a lot at my job. And I'm sure you saw it too at when you were a pediatric psych nurse. Mm -hmm. Parents get real, understandably, get really upset. Right. And it's not ideal for the children either. Nobody is like hooting and hollering and celebrating when they take children away from their parents. Like that's their family. Of course not. It sucks for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And it's like, don't put your kid in a situation where they have to be taken from you right. at the end of the day. But yeah, it's usually the social workers and just the staff at those entities as well that are just seen as, oh, they suck. And, you know, there have been times and cases all across the country where children were not taken and maybe DCYF went into the home and the parents were putting on a front and yes, hitting their kids where there wouldn't be visible bruises and the kids weren't taken away in a timely manner and something happened. So it's like, it's such a double-edged sword because you want to keep these kids with their families, Mm -hmm. but you want to make sure the kids are safe. You're going to be the bad guy no matter what. Right. And we've talked about many cases like that before. And there's so many you can just look up right now that are famous or well-known because it was a, you know, DCYF, CPS, whatever case where... They were checked in on, whatever, and the child wasn't taken away, and they ended up dead. It's happened so often. On Friday, August 7th of 2015, Lara met with a client in the morning in Berlin, Vermont. This client was a mom who had been struggling with addiction. She was speaking to Lara because she had recently relapsed. DCF and Lara were notified because she had used the heroin while her son was at home, which is absolutely grounds for a notification um, because that is absolutely not safe for a child to be around. This is the testimony of this mother. So this is her telling the story about her meeting with Lara. So this mother, she was absolutely terrified of losing her son. She didn't want to lose him to state custody. You know, she was really anxious to be having this meeting. She knew, you know, she had made a mistake and she was really trying to recover. And she loved her son, which is often the case. They love their children. And so she was really upset and, you know, she was so nervous to be talking to Lara. But this unnamed woman, she recalled that Lara eased her mind immediately and assured her that it was okay. And she noted that Lara kept telling her that relapse was a part of recovery. You're safe. We understand that this is what happens when you're recovering. And this woman said that Lara kept reassuring her that DCF wasn't there to take her child away, wasn't there to make her life hard, but rather there to help her. And that really changed the perception that this client had on DCF. And she recalled later that she felt so respected by Lara and so comforted in that she walked away feeling like she was treated as an equal and not some junkie that deserved to have her child taken away. Mm-hmm. Which there's a lot of people in the healthcare field, in the social work field who are older and still set in their ways. Yes. And only see people who do drugs and are trying to recover as junkies, no goods don't deserve anything, they're the scum of the earth, whatever, because that's how they 
were taught or the perception they had when they were in the 70s or whatever. So she really was so thankful that Lara did not make her feel that way because that was what everyone had made her feel that way. Right. And she's trying. That's the thing is like, she genuinely cares about her child. She's putting an effort to be a good mom for her child. Yeah. She's just struggling. Like, like you said, like Lara told her relapse is a part of recovery. Yeah. It's to be expected. It's unfortunate, but it's true. So I think just the fact that Lara was looking at her as a human being mm-hmm. and just treating her with basic, basic, basic dignity and respect, mm-hmm. that's huge. Yeah. That is so huge. And that's really, you know, you don't always see that when it comes yeah. to healthcare, especially with people who have been working at institutions like DCF, CPS, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm the older employees, the ones that are burnt out, the ones that are just so sick of seeing all these really shitty cases mm-hmm. tend to treat everybody the same. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like Laura, I mean, she had been there for 14 years and it seemed like she was still treating everybody with kindness and respect and like an individual. She wasn't meshing everybody together. Absolutely. And I see this at my work a lot. I often, so I obviously I work night shift. And so I often come in after day shift, which all of the day shift workers um, because they've usually been there a very long time, tend to be, they tend to be older, um, like they've been there for 40 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, the amount of times I've taken over a patient who's dealing with like mental health or like they have mental health problems in their history or they're maybe already showing signs of like a postpartum depression kind of thing. They love me. And I don't brag about myself very often. You know this, Katie. So, you know, I'm telling the truth that they like me because I'm like a breath of fresh air because I come in and I empathize and I don't judge them at all. And like, meanwhile, my co- some of the older coworkers are like, yeah, she has a history of, you know, heroin abuse. So she's terrible. She's junky. She's this, that, the other. And I go in there and I go, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to, you're my patient. Your baby's my patient. How can we have a good night? Mm-hmm. You know? Of course, that's not always the case. Sometimes they are actively having people sneak in heroin and, you know, clearly don't give a shit about their baby. You know, that's not for this moment in time. But, like, the newer generations are starting to become more and more accepting and more understanding. And to me, it seemed like Lara was this kind of person. Yes. She was very understanding. And all she wanted to do was help. This job really was her calling. Absolutely. And that is just one instance, just one example of how wonderful she was. Coworkers described her as loving, kind, caring, very hardworking. There was nothing she wouldn't do to protect children, let alone her own children, mm-hmm. but also the children of the state. She was very, very diligent about protecting children. So, like I said, this meeting was in Berlin, Vermont, on the morning of August 7th of 2015. It was a Friday. Later in the afternoon, like 4.45 p.m., Lara had made it back to, like, her office or whatever at Barry City Place on North Main Street in Barry, Vermont. And she was finishing up her work. She was about to head home. Outside in the parking lot, though, unbeknownst to Lara, there was a disgruntled woman screaming loudly in her car. She had been screaming so loudly, acting so crazy that people noticed. Soon, Lara left the building and she walked out into the parking lot. And immediately, these muffled, disgruntled screamings went from inside the car to outside the car. And before anyone could do anything, gunshots rang out. Witnesses saw a woman charging across the parking lot, holding a rifle, pointed at Lara. She was screaming. Some of her words could be made out, but most of them weren't because she was so frantic and so angry. She sounded like she was saying things like, they didn't listen to me, and everybody got what they deserved, things like that. A second shot rang out. Lara was now on the ground, surrounded by blood. She had been shot, and she died very soon after she was shot. Meanwhile, this very angry woman was tackled very quickly, She cooperated. Once Lara was down, she calmed immediately. She dropped her gun. She allowed herself to be tackled. She let the man take the gun away. She didn't even fight. She just was very calm, almost like satisfied. Yeah. Is the word I used. And then she was whisked away in a police car. Calm as a cucumber. 
satisfied, serene, amused. Yeah, laughing even. Mm -hmm. Like a psychotic, psychotic person who just killed a wonderful woman. By all accounts, a very wonderful woman. An absolute tragedy. And we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. We're going to take you through the events of that day, August 7th. Just kind of the timeline. Because unlike the title suggests, there's more murders. There's a lot. And uh, Lars was actually the last murder of the day. So strap in. On the same day, August 7th, 2015, 48-year-old Rhonda Herring's landline at her home in Berlin, Vermont, rang at about 8 o'clock in the morning. Rhonda's cousin, 40-year-old Jody Herring, was on the other line, and she was pissed. Mm. She stated angrily, quote, You guys need to stop calling DCF or else you guys are going to have it coming to you. You'll be fucking sorry. The you guys she was referring to was, of course, Rhonda as well as Rhonda's sister, Regina, and their mother, Julie Ann Falzerano, who all lived in the home together. Mm -hmm. As the day went on, Jody proceeded to make two more phone calls, both to her brother, Dwayne. Now, Dwayne did not have a relationship at all with Jody. Mm. He thought that she was unhinged. Mm -hmm. They went through a lot together as children that we'll talk about later in the episode. Mm -hmm. He just did not speak to her. They were not on any kind of mm -mm. terms. No. Dwayne did not answer the calls. Either he was busy or just left him with a voicemail. Whatever the reason, fair. At 2.56 p.m., Jody left him a voicemail where she stated, quote, If you think anything of your sister, you'll get a hold of me now or ASAP. Mm. The second voicemail, left four minutes later at 3 p.m., was where Jody stated, quote, Watch the news and you'll wish you got a hold of me earlier. Awful. Just two hours later after these phone calls were made, Jody was being pinned down in the parking lot of Barry City Place in Barry, Vermont, with a rifle with a scope next to her as police were en route. This parking lot, of course, was for multiple businesses, but as we know, also had the Department for Children and Families. Mm -hmm. One of the witnesses said that he heard the gunshots and saw Jody, quote, jumping around the parking lot, swinging the rifle around and saying over and over again, they didn't listen to me, it was my nine-year-old daughter, they got what they deserved. Mm. Witnesses had her pinned down, even though she wasn't fighting back, they just, you know, this woman just shot somebody. Yeah. So police come, she's laughing all the way to the police station. <sighs> the next morning, at around 8 a.m., Rhonda's 23-year-old daughter Tiffany Herring had stopped by at the home. You know, she hadn't really heard from her mom. She was just kind of going to swing by anyway to say hi. She couldn't get a hold of her. Like, she tried calling her, like, once or twice. It wasn't really going through. So she was like, oh, screw it. I'll go over there. Okay. When she got to the house, she found the door wide open. Mm. Already a terrible sign. Yeah. And when she walked inside, she found her mother's body along with Regina's and Julie's bodies. Medical examiner Dr. Stephen L. Shapiro determined that the women had been killed the previous day and all had been shot. Yeah. 43-year-old Regina Herring was shot twice in the torso. Rhonda was shot once in her upper torso. And their mom, 73-year-old Julianne Falzerano, was shot in her upper torso as well. Ugh. So authorities are thinking, okay, you know, these women are related to Jody Herring. Mm -hmm. Jody Herring did leave threatening voicemails to not only her brother, but she called and spoke to Rhonda. Mm -hmm. And she was very angrily threatening. Mm -hmm. Rhonda, you'll be fucking sorry. You guys got to stop calling DCF. And so, of course, Rhonda's daughter knew that this had happened. Mm -hmm. Rhonda let her know, like, hey, you know, my crazy cousin Jody, how she called me and she was all upset. Yeah. She thought I called DCF on her and she told me I'll be sorry. And so... Rhonda's daughter immediately to police was like, I think I know who did this. Yeah. And Jody was already in police custody for shooting Lara yep. point blank twice in the head yep. in the broad daylight in the parking lot. And so they're like, hey, Jody. Um, so funny story. Your two cousins and your aunt were found murdered. And she very calmly was like, yeah. Yeah, that was me. I, I told them they had it coming. That was me. Right. So, four murders in the span of several hours. Oh, yeah. Bare, like, it seems like maybe, like, 
barely three hours. Barely. This was like a spree killing, really. She had a she had a goal in mind. For sure. And it's so interesting because Lara was not a stranger to Jody, and Jody knew of Lara pretty well. Yeah. Because as we talked about, Lara's a social worker. Yes. Lara was Jody's social worker for a custody dispute and child welfare concerns involving Jody's nine-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. which Jody was screaming and yelling about in her car and in the parking lot yes. before and after murdering Lara. Right. So very clearly right off the bat, that is what this is about. Very obviously. And we're about to get into Jody Herring's long, long history because this woman is very... There's no denying it. She's very mentally ill. She has had a lot of trauma, but she's also made a lot of decisions that played into her ultimate arrest. Mm-hmm. Obviously, killing four people is part of that, but there's no mental illness to be blamed for that much. So, at this time, Jody Herring, she's 40 years old, and she lived in Southbury, Vermont. And like I said... She had lived a long, hard life up until that point, and it sometimes people come out of that making good decisions, going to Harvard, becoming a lawyer, even just going into a trade or just not committing major crimes. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen for Jody. She kind of was doomed from the start, I feel like. It all kind of started when her dad killed himself when she was just five years old. And there was one article I read where one of Jody's daughters, one of her adult daughters, claims that little Jody found her dad's body. That was only one instance, so I cannot say if that's true or not. Regardless, having your dad die at that age is very traumatic. It's That's like a foundation thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Very easily that's already ruined. And apparently after his death, Jody went from like a happy-go-lucky little girl to searing off into space all the time. She began having seizures after her dad died. She just changed completely, according to those around her, and she was never the same. Ever. A few other members of her family, along with Jody, were all convinced that her dad was murdered. Yeah. His death was ruled as a suicide, mm-hmm. and... That ruling really upset Jody and a couple other members of her family because they all, and to this day, they all believe fully, wholeheartedly that he was murdered. Yeah. So them writing it off as a suicide did not help at all that her dad was dead. And just everything that transpired with that case, after that case, it was just a snowball effect, I think. Oh, yeah. Jody's criminal convictions go all the way back to 1992 when she was in like her late teens. Those charges include heroin possession, driving with a suspended license, and even credit card fraud. In June, so literally two months before this incident, she had gotten a DUI. So clearly, you know, her trauma, whatever, you know, the things she went through, it led to drug addiction. And drug addiction leads to so many terrible things. And Sometimes people recover, and that's wonderful, but clearly Jody was not heading down that path at this time. Mm-hmm. And so, as like I said, as recently as two months before, she'd gotten a DUI that's pretty serious, and clearly things were not improving. Right before this event, she had recently sought help from a psychiatrist and was even put on medications like Ritalin and Clonopin, which are, together, pretty uh, good that, those are medications for sure. And, you know, it's pretty legit. Like, she was kind of trying. Mm-hmm. And who knows if she was trying because she wanted to try or because that was a condition of DCF or Child Protective Services. A lot of times what I see at work is parents will get their children taken away and they are given this, like, the goal of DCF, Child Protective Services, is to reunite the child with the parent. That's the ultimate goal. Nobody wants these kids to be in state custody. That's so expensive, so time-consuming. Nobody wants that, A, and also because these children should be with their parents. Mm -hmm. But they have to do things to prove that they can take care of their kids. So a lot of times these parents will be given a set of things they have to accomplish or prove that they will stick with in order to get their child back. So 
Jody may have been told she has to take medication and stick with it. She may have been told she has to be compliant with um, psychiatric evaluation or um, therapy. Mm-hmm. Very common things that need to be done. A lot of times people are sent to rehab or told you need to go to rehab on your own, prove that you can do it, and then you you know will take steps from there. So I'm wondering if that's why she saw a psychiatrist. But, well, I mean, it's hard to tell. Unfortunately, Jody had been dealing with DCF for a very long time. She had three daughters. Two of them had been removed from her custody at multiple points of time as well. It might seem kind of bizarre, but Child Protective Services can take your child and return them and take them back and do that over and over and over again. Over and over again. Because you can prove yourself and then you can relapse or do whatever. Absolutely. Or you can meet their checklist because you know that's what you have to do. And then once that checklist is all checked off and you have your kid back, a lot of people think, okay, you know, what's the point of me continuing to do anything? Mm -hmm. I have my kid. That's what I wanted. That's my goal. Okay, great. And then they just kind of fall back in their ways. And Mm -hmm. it's really shitty because it's so traumatic for the kids. Yes. To be taken away by the government. Yeah. Strangers. By strangers. Put in a foster home or a group home. God forbid the conditions in those places Mm -hmm. are not great. No. It's just so awful. And then they have this false hope. They go back with their mom and, oh, mommy, I'm so excited. I miss you so much. And, you know, you changed and you're you're all better now. And then they have to watch their mom fall back into their ways and then get taken again and then brought back again. And it's it's rough. It's very sad. And it's so shitty because the kids are the true victims in this situation. Right. And it's just so frustrating on all accounts. And it's frustrating for the parents too, because, you know, they want their kids and it's hard having someone tell you you're an adult, but I'm telling you what to do. Right. To get your kids back. Right. It's just so awful. Yeah. And also Jody felt that DCF had it out for her as is. And then when her daughter Desiree was 20, her son was taken away from her. So Jody's grandson was taken away. So now she's like, okay, you took my kids and now you're taking my grandson. What's up with that? She was livid. I mean, okay, that is pretty sucky. Yes, that sucks. No doubt. But there's reasons why. It's not like because people are like, "Mm, let's just, uh, I feel like I want this baby. Like, no, not at all. You know, it's for a reason. So she just was never going to be a normal mom. And that was very obvious. And just as a side note, because of her criminal background, Jody had been something called Brady disqualified, which meant she wasn't legally allowed to purchase a gun. So how she got a gun is a good question. We'll maybe figure it out later, but... She was not supposed to have a gun on her. And she was a convicted person. So, I mean, I imagine her having a firearm is also a crime. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Her life up until this point, these decisions she made, not, no. This whole situation, she just was doomed. There was no way that any of this was going to work out. No. No. And her doctor had even expressed feeling as though she had bipolar disorder. Mm. The doctor said back in 2010 that due to Jody's quote, numerous office visits, it is unlikely she would be able to hold a job for any length of time because of her emotional state and her resultant inability to stay focused. Mm. He also gave his diagnosis to an attorney at the Office of Child Support just to give them a heads up, like, hey, I'm diagnosing this woman as bipolar. Of course. I recommend the following course of treatment, X, Y, and Z. Like, she really needs to get it together and show some initiative. And she cannot stay focused. She cannot hold a job, but she needs to work on her mental health. Absolutely. Get medication, show some kind of willingness to be treated Mm -hmm. so that she can be a fit mom. Yes. You can't really be a fit mom if you're not taking medication, you're refusing to go to treatment, you can't hold down a job, you can't even stay focused. Yeah. How are you going to raise one kid, let alone three? So, I mean, I fully understand. And they were all different circumstances in which all of the kids were taken. I mean, all of the kids had different fathers. All of the kids had different, 
you know, child support and custody right. agreements and visitation rights right. because it was all dependent on the individual situation, right. which is what DCF is supposed to do. They're supposed to look at the situation, right. the facts surrounding everything, and it just so happens that there were multiple separate situations that allowed all three of her children to be taken away. Right. So clearly, I think at that point, the common denominator is Jody. Right. Unfit parents. Yes. Period. And sometimes that's just how it is. Right. And it's not Lara's fault for doing her job. And she was very compassionate and she was very respectful. But at the end of the day, Jody was thinking, this woman is responsible for taking away my child. Mm -hmm. And that was her last straw. Right. Absolutely. So immediately after she was arrested, we kind of touched on this. Jody was calm. She was joking. She was in the police car with the officers driving her like, you just killed a woman. And she was, like, joking about what just happened. Even despite this, she pleaded not guilty. Just because. Not, like, not guilty by reason of insanity. Just because she was, no, I'm not guilty. Girl, you're, like, admitting it. You're, like, so proud of it. You're, like, yeah, no, I'm not guilty. What? And unsurprisingly, she was held without bail. Of course. And obviously, her defense lawyers immediately were like, we want a psych evaluation right now or else. And they were like, okay. Because they wanted to see if Jody was competent to stand trial due to her bizarre behavior. You know, because she was seen screaming in her car beforehand. Because she was like bouncing around the parking lot. Um, because of how she acted afterwards. That's very bizarre. Mm-hmm. They wanted to try and convince everyone she was crazy. And there's no doubt that she had some mental illness. And we'll go through it. That's totally fair. It did not drive her to kill Lara Sobel. And what we eventually will find out is her cousins and aunt. Right. She knew what she was doing and she planned it all out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in July of 2017, it had been almost two years after the murder of the four women Jody Herring, she actually entered a plea deal. She pled guilty to first-degree murder of Lara Sobel, and she pleaded guilty to the second-degree murder of her two cousins and her aunt. She could only get this plea deal with a reduced sentence if she laid out the entirety of the story and all the details, which she did. And then, following her guilty pleas, there was a three-day-long sentencing hearing where evidence was laid out, witnesses testified, you know, all this stuff heard, the defense testified, the prosecution gave their argument, whatever, and uh, they wanted to just give her the most appropriate sentence possible, considering the fact that she had entered a plea deal. Prosecutors said that she showed no remorse throughout her court proceedings. Yeah, you can see the picture. She is... Flat-faced. Mm-hmm. Jody's attorney, David Slay, had asked the judge for leniency because of Jody's history of trauma, abuse, and her anxiety disorder, and said that she had reached out multiple times for help and that her cries for help were never answered. Jody had most recently gone through a 90-day involuntary inpatient psychiatric stay, but was let go on early release, which her attorney said was reckless and negligent and also played a role in her actions. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about, Jody's father died when she was a child, her family and her thought that he was murdered. It was announced as a suicide. Just very upsetting. Right. She was also physically abused by her mother and stepfather. And her brother, Dwayne, said that when she was 10 and he was 13, they were both kicked out of the house. Mm. They had to sleep in abandoned cars before going to their grandparents' home. Yeah. That is rough. There is no denying that. That is terrible. And to be abused by your mom, someone you're supposed to trust, and then... You know, someone she brings into the home and says, I love this person. You should love them, too. And then they're abusing you. That's awful. And then, of course, having your dad kill himself or having the question of did he get killed sit over your head for all your life. That's very hard. There's no doubt. Jody's first child was a pregnancy as a result of rape when she was just 17 years old. Also terrible. Horrific. Yeah. Any one of those things on its own, is horrific. Mm -hmm. And when you lump them all together, Mm -hmm. it really is almost unfathomable to imagine that one person could go through that much at such a young age. Yeah. 
In October of 2014, Jodi became unemployed and her and her youngest daughter became houseless. In early 2015, the school counselor reported concerns that Jodi was becoming less coherent and harder to follow during conversations about trying to connect her to resources. Mm. This is when DCF was contacted because of concerns about the child's safety, as Jodi was very anxious, mm-hmm. flighty, not making eye contact, fidgety, going off on unrelated tangents, and not making any sense during their conversations. Mm-hmm. So they were thinking, what is this woman taking? She mm-hmm. is clearly on some kind of substance, not safe to be around this child, let alone alone at home with this child clearly not able to parent this child. Right. And also this woman and this child are houseless. Right. So that alone is really shitty. Yeah. Jody was very, very, very angry at this, especially because DCYF placed the youngest daughter in her father's custody just Mm -hmm. a few weeks later. Right. Not an ideal situation. Right. A man named Henry Premont, who was in a relationship with Jody at this time, said that she began making comments about wanting to shoot people in the head and watch the brain matter splatter. She would also make comments about how there's going to be an Armageddon and how people are going to pay, and a lot of these comments were referring to DCF. Mm-hmm. She had a handwritten hit list with names of her cousins Regina and Rhonda and her aunt Julianne on it, mm-hmm. as well as other people. Yeah. In March of 2015, Jody attempted to purchase firearms from two separate stores, but was unsuccessful after the store ran a background check. <laughs> See how important that is? So easy. Just, wow. A lot of, a lot of instances could be prevented by a simple background check. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. As a result of a suicide attempt in May of 2015, Jody overdosed on pills And she had called her cousin and she told her cousin, you know, let my daughter know why she doesn't have a mother anymore. And this was very alarming, clearly a very suicidal statement. Right. Knowing Jody. Right. And so they show up and they find her laying in a bed surrounded by pills Mm -hmm. and also pictures of her children. I think that was one billion and ten percent a half-hearted attempt of suicide. Like she knew she wasn't, she didn't actually do enough to kill herself. She knew she actually wasn't going to die. Just that she wanted everyone to be like, look what you've done. You ruined me. Cause how dramatic is it to have pictures of your kids and all the bottles next to you? Like, see, see, mm-hmm. that's what exactly what she did. Absolutely. During her psychiatric stay, she was initially aggressive, combative, and very resistant to treatment. I mean, she's fighting the staff, fighting the nurses, fighting mm. the doctors, not partaking in anything, not getting anything out of her treatment. And this was when she was involuntarily committed to the 90-day stay. Mm-hmm. She eventually became a little more receptive, but she started asking repeatedly to leave. Yeah. I want to leave. I don't want to be here. Discharge me. I'm not getting anything out of this. Fuck everybody. Fuck you. I'm not taking my medication. Probably spitting out her pills at the nurses. Like, yeah. I used to work in a psych hospital. I can just picture her behavior. I can just picture how she acted. Oh, yeah. And I bet you a lot of her behavior was attention-seeking. 1,000%. She actually was discharged at the end of May when her stay was set to be 90 days. So she didn't even do 30 days. Yeah. Because she's just, she's not getting anything out of her stay. And all she's doing all day long is saying that she wants to leave. Right. So they were like, Um, we probably can't bear the thought of keeping you here for another 60 days. Good luck out there. Toodaloo. Right. But discharging her was clearly very negligent because it was a 90-day stay. Mm -hmm. She rarely was there for 30 days. And clearly she was unfit to be discharged. Right. Her boyfriend, Henry, confessed to purchasing a gun to give to Jody, Mm -hmm. which is a felony. Yeah. Although the rifle used in the shooting was not the gun he purchased for her, and it was his. It was Henry's. It was his. But Jody stole it without permission. Yes. So Henry would have gone down if he had purchased the gun and that gun was used in the shooting. Right. So he did kind of... It worked out for him because it wasn't that gun. But right. why in God's name would you purchase a firearm for your girlfriend who just got out of a psychiatric hospital and you know is incredibly unstable? Luckily, her brother talked Henry down from that. He was like, don't, don't, just don't. Why? And Henry was like, yeah, you're right. So while he almost made a really bad mistake, he is, you know, he had a gun and he, that's his right as an American. And 
she stole it from him. Mm-hmm. So that's not his fault. Also, there was several forensic psychologists that testified for the defense, sticking very heavily with, you know, the trauma that she endured, and also citing that Jody's severe anxiety disorder was part of it. One forensic psychologist, Dr. Renee Sorrentino, said that Jody's severe anxiety, quote, fueled her general suspicion of others in the months preceding the incident offenses. Okay. I also have, I had pretty severe anxiety as a teenager. Like, I wouldn't even be able to talk on the phone. I didn't kill anyone. I even killed a single person. And I had, and I still have anxiety. I still have pretty good social anxiety. I haven't killed anyone. I fucking hate when people pull this. Because do you know how many great, empathetic, kind, smart, wonderful people there are in this world with crippling mental illness? Yeah. It's insane. Quite a lot. Oh, yeah. Quite a lot. And a lot of them are working to better themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're also using their experiences to better others. Mm -hmm. They're therapists, nurses, social workers, Mm -hmm. working in healthcare, teachers, guidance counselors, and just incredible kind people. And even if they're not great people, they're not murdering people. It's not an excuse at all whatsoever. No, I don't. Well, I do care that she had a really shitty childhood. It's awful. It makes me feel bad for her. No one deserves that, but I don't care that that happened to her and she's saying oh you know i well my dad died when i was five so i shot my social worker who removed my kids from my care like it's not my problem that being an awful mother to have three children taken away from you that's a direct reflection on you like the common denominator is Is you you. jody like oh my god it's just and her defense They need to go home and look themselves in the mirror, like give themselves a good look. Because I hate, hate, hate when people use the whole mental health, mental illness argument to justify these actions because it's just so unjustifiable. Yeah. Prosecution said that the evidence didn't support this argument and stated, quote, the reality is that childhood abuse, substance abuse, mental health problems are all too common in our society, and while we should do everything we can to combat them, they don't and shouldn't justify, excuse, or mitigate a planned, brutal, savage, multiple murder. Go off. Well said. Damn straight. Absolutely. We need that on a banner. Yeah. So we can wave around in all these courtrooms. Yeah. Jody did speak at her sentence hearing. She did. She gave a very loose, half-hearted apology. She said this. Quote, I'm very sorry. I can't take back that day. I wish I could, but I can't. I handle my stress so differently than anybody else. And I wish I could help myself. I asked for help several times and I didn't get it. Which is interesting because she did get it. She refused it. And I handle my stress so differently than anybody else. That's not a good... Nope. That's irrelevant. I handle my stress by... Uh, I eat ice cream a lot. You handle your stress by murdering your cousins and your aunt and the soul. No, no, no. Doesn't work. Sorry. In the end, the court definitely was agreeable to Jody's anxiety and trauma. They recognized that it played a role in her ability to trust others. And with that, combined with her, quote, need to blame others for things that are more complicated, it became deadly. That's very true. After the three-day sentence hearing, Jody was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Lara Sobel. She was also sentenced to concurrent sentences of 20 years to life for the murder of each cousin and her aunt. Matthew Levin, an assistant state attorney general who helped prosecute Jody and also had the banger quote from just a few minutes earlier, Stated, quote, by targeting Laura Sobel as a DCF worker at her place of employment, she was really assaulting the justice system as a whole. She was assaulting the social service network as a whole. Randy Herring, who lost his two sisters and mother, mm-hmm. said that he received a diagnosis of both depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. He stated, quote, my wife told me that she lost her husband because I can no longer feel happiness. Oh, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. How awful. 
Lara Sobel's family reported feeling grateful for the outcome of the trial and that Lara spent her life helping others and leaves that behind as part of her legacy. Mm-hmm. Her sister stated, quote, she was dedicated to the protection of the children of Vermont and to making a difference in the world. And truly today her legacy was honored. Wow. Very powerful. And that is the very, very messed up murder of Lara Sobel at the hands of Jody Herring, who was obviously a very awful woman. Um, she, yes, she experienced trauma and had anxiety and all that, but man, she really, those were some terrible crimes she committed. Yeah. Yeah. And seriously, the murders of her cousins, Rhonda and Regina, and her grandmother, Julianne, as well. Terrible. Terrible. So, of course, we want to know what you guys think about this case. Was it um, a twisty-turny for you, like it maybe was for us? Because were you expecting three more people to die all of a sudden? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNe. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email with your thoughts and feelings regarding this case or any other case we've covered at TrueCrimeNe at gmail.com. We also, of course, have a website where you can go to our contact page and use our handy-dandy submission tool. You can leave your thoughts on this case, other cases we've covered, questions, comments, concerns. You can suggest a case to us via any of the above platforms Liz mentioned or this one. This one's a little different because you can be anonymous if you so choose. But if you do decide to suggest a case to us based in New England, please, that is a great way to earn yourself a shout out. Another great way to earn a little shout out is to scroll down a little further and click our buy us a coffee button. You can click the button that says thank you and go to our buy us a coffee page. But seriously, do not feel as though you have to spend money on us. Another way if you want to spend a little money money is to go to our shop and you can look at some merch we have. We have two designs that are little inside jokes and pretty personal to us and our podcast logo as well on there. But seriously, you guys just being here and listening to the cases that we have means so much to us and we could not thank you guys enough. Very well said, Katie. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.